right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to continue in Hebrews this morning, in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 9. Uh, but before we jump into that, let's just say a word of prayer together. Our Father, I thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our Lord and Savior. You, he's all we need. Uh, I pray, Lord, this morning that as we gather here and all that we do, um, all these songs that we sing and the bread and the uh, wine and the juice that we drink and then the word that is preached and uh, in the ways we serve one another and, and all of these different things that we do on Sunday mornings this morning, I pray that Jesus will be made known. I pray that you would just glorify Jesus here, that we would know who you are, know what you're like and remember your great love for us and remember what you've come, that you've come for us and that you are all uh, that we need. I pray, Lord, that you speak this morning to each one of us, say what you want to say, and, and make us able to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. God is, God is holy, and we are sinful, right? God is holy, we are sinful. God is, that means God is pure, and, and we are impure. And so there's an obstacle to our being with one another, like God with us and us with God, because that which is pure can't be with that which is impure and still be pure. But also, God is the creator and he's the sustainer of our life, and the separation from him that sin causes, it leads to our death. It's like a branch being clipped from a vine. Sin clips us from our life source. And it wasn't always that way, but this is what our sin has done. And at some level, we kind of know that we need our relationship with God to be right in order to live. We know that something is off. We know that we're dying. And maybe it's just like our instinct to survive, but we start fighting for life. We fight to survive. We look for meaning and we look for purpose anywhere and everywhere. We try to squeeze out everything we can from this life. We try to do whatever we think is necessary to ensure that if and when we die, we somehow will live on. But the truth is that we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves holy we can't make ourselves pure. We can't make ourselves without sin. And we, like a clipped branch withering on the ground, cannot graft ourselves back into the vine. We need saving. Let's jump into Hebrews together this morning. We're, we're going to be looking, like I said, at chapter 9 today. Uh, but we're going to start with just chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. It'll be on the screen, and you can follow along. You can open your Bible and read along with me, Hebrews 9, 1 through 10. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, and had an earthly place of, for holiness, of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a, a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that was budded, and the tablets of the covenant. 
Above it were the cherubim of glory, the overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second one, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as that first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. I'm not going to spend... A whole lot of time digging in this, uh, although it's pretty tempting. We could probably spend several weeks just talking about the deeper meaning of the tent and the, or the tabernacle, the lampstand, the table, the, the bread of the presence, the Ark of the Covenant, the, all that stuff and so on. But this wasn't what the author had in mind for us to do. He even says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's because to dive into all of it would be like a rabbit trail and, and he's trying to make a point. But there's a couple of things that I think we, we should mention. The author talks about all this stuff, I think, in order to put a picture in the mind of the hearer, specifically those early Jewish Christians to whom he was speaking. As we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews for the last several weeks, we've talked a lot about what we know of the original audience. This letter or this sermon, it seems to be specifically addressing uh, these early Jewish Christians who were facing persecution Because of their faith in Jesus, their lives and their livelihood were in danger. And that survival instinct was starting to kick in for many of them. Like, they're asking the questions, like, what if we just worship God in the old ways? Like, what if we just went back to the Old Testament law? What if we went back to the temple, back to the priests, back to the sacrificial system? Would they be out of danger then? This seems to be the thought pattern that the preacher's been addressing throughout the book and here, and he wants them to have a picture in mind that will help them understand why turning back to the old ways is insufficient. And what he paints is a picture of of this tent, the tabernacle, the very place and the very way that they might be considering returning to. In the Old Testament, God's people were instructed to build this tabernacle. It was to be the place where God would dwell with his people. But in order for that to happen, the obstacle of sin, the thing that keeps impure and unholy people from being in right relationship with a pure and holy God, that obstacle of sin had to be dealt with in some way. And so the space was set up and the the ceremonies and the rituals were practiced in order to keep God's presence like away from anything impure, anything unholy, while also being able to be among his people in some way. And the tabernacle tabernacle itself was set up there with, with the people, right? But there was also like a buffer section. There's an outer section or, or a first section, which the author is calling, you know, it's the holy place. 
Priests would go in there regularly. Not everybody could just go in there, but the priests would go there regularly, and they would go in there, and they perform, perform all these ritual duties. And then beyond that space, beyond the holy place, there's another space called the most holy place. And this is the space where the presence of God was. Only the high priest could go in there. And the high priest could only go in there once a year. And when the high priest went in, they had to go with sacrifices and blood for themselves and for all the people and for their families. They had to be ritually purified in order to enter. And this is the system that these early believers may have been considering returning to. And so the preacher tells them to hold that picture in their mind and consider the, the implications of the system. Like the tabernacle itself, the whole arrangement was a constant reminder that sin and death actually remained lodged between God and man. God wasn't yet with his people like he was with Adam and Eve. He wasn't out walking and talking with them. He wasn't with them as he is with us where the Holy Spirit is indwelling his children. He was behind the veil in the most holy place, which was behind the holy place, beyond where the people could go. And everything was always having to be covered with the blood of sacrifices, just constantly blood, constantly being purified, constantly something was having to die to compensate for sin. And this is a constant reminder by, by way of religious ritual. It was meant to be not only a reminder of the sin and death that remained lodged between God and man, it was also meant to point to a future reality when God would deal with it. You know, the insufficiency of the old covenant sacrifices and ceremony, they're clear in that even in the Old Testament, God says that what he really desires from his people is for them to do justice and to love mercy and to show kindness and to live in obedience. In Hosea 6.6, God says it clearly. He says, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings." The blood of animals would never be enough as it couldn't make a way for real intimate relationship to be restored because it couldn't change a person. It couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, as the writer of Hebrews says. See, all that stuff, the old way, was just acting as a signpost. It was acting as a reminder that, that man could not save themselves, but that God, from the start, had promised to save, that he had promised to make a way. And because his word is always good, from everlasting to everlasting, it's as good as done. A Savior would come. And in Jesus, our Savior has come. And so those old signposts are no longer needed. God established that only for a time, to anchor his people's faith in a future fulfillment of his promises. But once Jesus came... They're no longer needed. So we can't save ourselves. These early Jewish believers could not save themselves. And no signpost, no reminder, no ritual, that cannot do the work of saving. They never could. They could only ever point to the one who would save. Which is what we get to next. It's the arrival of the one who saves. Let's move into the second part of chapter 9. It's chapter 9 verses 11 through 28. It's a good bit. Follow along with me if you would 
would like to on the screen. It says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the blood, the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels that are used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's dense, right? That's dense. Again, there's just a lot here. We could, we could get stuck for quite a while, but we're just kind of trying to cut through to a point. We've talked about a lot of this stuff already over the last few weeks, and essentially all this is just clarifying what we already said, that the tent and all that went with it, all the high priest and the sacrificing and all the blood and all this, it was all just a signpost. It was a model. It was a representation of what God was ultimately doing. It was just a copy. And now that Jesus has come, Those things have been replaced by the real thing. But for a moment, I want to pause and just read again verses 12 through 14. Just read this again with me. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purity purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And I read that again, and I just want to pause on these few verses because it seems, <coughs> excuse me, it seems flippant to just keep talking about all the death and all the violence of the sacrificial system without acknowledging it. Like, it's just so much blood in this chapter. There's so much blood in the Old Testament. There's so much blood. Why? It's because sin is a really violent thing. Sin is a really bloody thing. Sin rips children away from a loving parent. Sin imprisons, sin kills and destroys people from the inside out. Sin leads to death because it breaks us off from the vine and it separates us from the creator and the sustainer of life. Sin isn't a flippant thing, though I think we often think of it pretty flippantly. And under the old covenant, God required sacrifices of unblemished animals to be offered up to deal with the sins of his people. It's a violent, bloody practice. But the violence isn't God's. It's a constant reminder of the violence of our sin. It's a constant reminder of the sin obstacle that is between us and God. It's a constant reminder that God will provide a sufficient sacrifice in order to forgive our sin and repair our relationship with him. A goat and a calf could never do that. An animal sacrifice was always only a ceremonially, like, making a way. It was only a signpost. It was only a reminder, and it couldn't wash our conscience clean. But when Jesus died, well, he was the fulfillment of what all that was always pointing to. God would provide a sacrifice on our behalf that would deal with the obstacle of sin between us and him. He himself would absorb the violent end of our sin for us. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, gave himself. The scripture says offered himself. Being perfect, he was fully acceptable as a sacrifice. And being God... He was the ultimate sacrifice. And rising again, he has removed once and for all the obstacle of sin and death that stood between us and God. Where there was an obstacle between us and him, now there is Jesus standing as our mediator forever between us and God. To go back to the end of Hebrews 8, 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the high priest, that was only a signpost. It was only a model. It was only a reminder of the situation that they were in. And it was a glimpse into what God had in store for his people. But it was never confined. God was never confined to this little room in the, in the most holy place. But also his presence with his people was limited because of the sin obstacle. And unless he provided, sin could never be forgiven once and for all because we could never be clean by the blood of animals.
The blood sprinkled constantly over all these different pieces could never cover sin. But it pointed to the unblemished sacrifice of Jesus, who would make a way for us to be forgiven and whose sacrifice and victory over death would do away with sin's death grip on us once and for all. The ceremony and the ritual and the law could never save. Only Jesus saves. And so, to these early Jewish believers who are facing persecution and maybe considering the old ways, the preacher of Hebrews is simply saying that going back is futile. Going back is futile. Like it's your, maybe your instinct to try and save yourself because you're being faced with persecution, because you're being faced with suffering, but you'd be going back to save your like present body, to save your present life maybe, but you can't save your soul. So don't go look to the old ways for refuge. Look only to Jesus. That's what all that stuff in the past always was pointing to. Now, this message is very specific to these early Jewish Christians. That's why it's so dense, especially for us, because we, we're not really accustomed to all the things that were just kind of normal for them. None of us are considering turning to the sacrificial ceremony of the Old Covenant. But I think we know at some level, consciously or unconsciously, that what we need most is our relationship with God to be right in order to truly live. And though we're not likely facing terrible persecution for our faith, I bet something feels threatening to you. It could be a multitude of things. I bet you've tried to save your, your own self in one of a myriad of ways, rather than keeping your eyes on Jesus this week. And so what I leave us with this morning is just a call to identify and name what pulls you away from Jesus. What is it that pulls you away from Him? Because we tend to believe that we can just go about our business, that we can go save our own lives in this way or that way, and then we can come over here and do like X, Y, Z or whatever to make ourselves right with God also. To those early Jewish believers, like saving their actual life felt most urgent, and they were looking to save their necks and then still somehow satisfy the need to be right with God. And for you and I, it could be a health thing. It could be a life-threatening thing that's urgent for us, but it could also be like a need to succeed, a need to leave a legacy, a, a need to maintain some sort of control, to succeed in some other way, something else that seems most urgent for you. And we may think that we can sort of have our cake and eat it too, right? That we can go and do whatever we need to do in order to survive in this world and not worry about it, whether or not it promotes justice or shows mercy or acts obediently in God's um, direction, to God's direction. And maybe we don't have the tabernacle to go back to, but we think we could just kind of operate in that way, save ourselves in that way. And then if we build something or if we give something up or if we attend church or if we were to tithe or we do the singing or we do it, whatever, right, then we're good. But I think we forget the violence of our sin. We forget the violence of our sin, and we forget that the, the ceremony, that doesn't save. The practices, they don't save. Going to church doesn't save. Tithing doesn't save. Singing doesn't save. None of that stuff saves. Only Jesus saves. 
And if we're looking to anything else for salvation, it's futile. It's all meant only to point to Jesus Christ, who's our Savior. The Old Covenant had sacrifices and, and all that to point to a future coming of Jesus. And we have our practices to help us remember Jesus too. We come to church, we do this together. Maybe you go to missional community and we read the Bible and discuss things together. Maybe you're doing some sort of intentional thing for Lent right now in this season, like fasting or praying. Those things are all good. Those practices are signposts that point us to Jesus. But the signposts and the reminders, they're not what saves us. Only Jesus saves us. So let us not turn to our own works and our own practices for salvation. Let us not even kind of be lulled into relying on those things for our salvation. The Christian, the Christian life can't be lived like a checklist, just going through some motions in order to meet God's demands and buy our way into everlasting life. Now, we've been invited in to see the reality that our sin is violent, and it kills, and it destroys, and it separates us from God, and it separates us from our very source of life. We're also invited in to see that Jesus has come out for us and he stands as an eternal mediator where there once was an insurmountable obstacle. He's picked us up and he's grafted us back into the vine. He's all that we could ever need. And so we're going to move into a time of response and just as we move into that, I just want to invite you over the next few minutes just to quietly and prayerfully name and confess the places you turn to for salvation other than Jesus. And I want you to turn your heart to him and prayerfully tell him that he's all you need. Confess that back to him. You are all that I need. You're all I'm going to turn to. As we move into a time of response, the band's going to come and they're going to lead us again into a time of worship where you can continue to prayerfully think about these things and worship him and turn to him we're also going to come as we do each week and we're going to take communion together as you come there's a tithing and offering basket in the back where you can give we know that a lot of people give electronically you're welcome to give this way that way the other there's other instructions what we like to remind you every week god is our provider god is a creator and sustainer of this life and as you're giving, whether it's slipping out of your bank account or whether you're giving on a Sunday morning some way back there, we just want you to pause and remember who he is and worship him in that way. Take a moment to acknowledge that that money is slipping out of your bank and worship God as your provider. And then as you come, we come and we take the bread and we can dip it in the wine or the juice. There's also little cups with a wafer and some juice if you prefer that. As we come... We're remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was given for us. We remember that that old way is gone, that Jesus has come, that everything, all the signposts we're pointing to has come for us. We remember that there was a great violence caused by our sin, and we remember that he offered himself for us. So we're coming and we're confessing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, that he has done it once and for all.
And that in so doing it, he is our mediator. He has made us not only right with God, but he is making us right with one another and bringing us into the family as his children, as brothers and sisters. And he's making us right with one another. And so we just come and we confess that in our taking. We are remembering these truths and we're proclaiming it to each other as we take. Right? We're reminding one another again, Jesus is the only one we need. I love that it's bread. As the Lord's Supper is. Right? Give us our daily bread. He is all we need. Today and every day and forever. So we invite you to come and take and make this confession and to remember and proclaim Christ together. Whether you're a member at Redemption Church or not, if you're a Christian and you want to take with us, we invite you to do that. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move into this time. Our Father, I pray in this moment that you would Allow us to be reminded through, through your word, um, through our practice here as we, we take communion, through our giving, but that we be reminded by your Holy Spirit of the weight of our sin, of the violence of it, not so that we would sit in guilt and shame, not so that we'd be covered up with that stuff, but so that we would remember like, what it means that Jesus has offered himself on our behalf. And I, I want us to be overwhelmed with the good news that you love us that much. I want us to be overwhelmed by, by the great love of Jesus towards us. I want us to be transformed by that. God, I, I pray that for us. I pray that you help us to identify those things that um, sort of sing siren songs to us and pull us away and call us away and make us think that we can rely on them or that we can rely on ourselves to save. Help us to identify them and to call them out and to confess them and change our hearts and turn us to Jesus who is the only one who could ever truly save. Help us to know it wholeheartedly that you are all we need. May we look more and more like you and make you known to one another and to those outside of this place. In Jesus' name.